Internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be reviewing the long-awaited Venom Solo movie from Sony Pictures, as well as all four versions of A Star is Born. So, let's get started. You have no idea how much you're scaring me right now. Cooperate. And you just might survive. Guys, you do not want to do this, trust me. Giant leaps will always come at a cost. There will be a couple things you notice uh, this time around. First of all, the change in audio quality. I have relocated within stately Casa de Juan. Uh, I have shifted rooms, and so I'm in a more compacted room for uh, Popcorn Junkie Studios. So hopefully that will actually improve my audio quality in the future. And, uh... Yeah, in case, depending on how well the mic's picking her up, Mama Boots is around here somewhere, just just being a cat, doing cat things. So, pay her no mind. She just she's just being a silly cat. Uh, at any rate, um, I'd much rather be talking about my cat than about this movie. But here we are. So, the Venom solo movie, the thing that no, literally nobody was asking for. And that Sony Pictures did anyway, despite having, you know, perfectly reasonable le- setup for uh, actual Venom integration into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Sony was just like, yeah, we could work with Disney and Marvel, but you know what? Nah, let's just do our, let's set up our own side Spider-Man universe. And this is also in not in conjunction with their own animated Spider-Man universe that they're introducing this December. So instead of just waiting and letting Venom come out in December as part of their own animated Spider-Man universe outside of the MCU, they could do that no problem. That movie looks perfectly fine. They decided to rush out. Well, not rush out. They decided to, you know, (laughs) cobble together with the help of... 2000s era superhero superstar Avi Arad they decided to make their own Venom solo movie and hopeful and uh, now if you if you haven't been paying attention to the to the trades he they want to make Venom their version of Spider-Man they want to make they they want to make a Venom verse out of the Spider-Verse and Venom is going to be the main main protagonist this is who's gonna take on the Sinister Six and who's gonna face off against Morbius. Oh, God. Oh, it's so stupid. 
But yeah, meanwhile, so yeah, Avi Arad, for those who don't know, is probably best known for producing most of the the superhero, pretty much all of the Marvel superhero movies from, ooh, let's see how far back he goes. Uh, he's been producing TV. He did the Generation X TV movie, uh, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. TV movie. Uh, first real feature-length film with Marvel was Blade. Uh, he did the X-Men movie, Spider-Man, um, the Hulk, both Hulk and the Incredible Hulk. He was in early on with the, um, with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He was also a producer on Bratz, somehow. Um, he did start with Iron Man, the Incredible Hulk, um, Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, the Amazing Spider-Man. He that he somehow got out when uh, he was, I guess, released, let go when Disney bought out uh, Marvel from Paramount, and he and so he became he was apparently a p- producer on Ghost in the Shell and Kong King of the Apes, which is one of the worst looking Netflix animated series I've ever seen. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man Two, Pac-Man and the Ghostly Adventures. Cody the Ro- This dude is all over the place as a producer. And of course, he's attached to the Naruto movie from Holly- that Hollywood is supposedly producing. The Uncharted movie they're doing. Morbius, Silver Surfer, Prodigal Son, The Sinister Six, Silver Sable, Metal Gear Solid, and Craven the Hunter. <sighs> Just... And that's the thing. This dude is not known for quality in and of himself. Like he like here's what we're, here's what I'm talking about. He produced the 2004 Punisher movie, Elektra, Man Thing, Fantastic Four, the direct-to-video Avengers Ultimate Avengers movie, X Men: The Last Stand. Uh, like the only good thing, I don't uh, the Killing Floor, which I've never. What the hell is that? The Killing Floor, a literary agent moves into a penthouse apartment. Mark Lucas, I have no, some is apparently some Israeli thriller murder movie, something or another. But yeah, Bratz, the direct-to-video animated Marvel movies, Wolverine and the X-Men, Iron Man Armored Adventures, X-Men Origins Wolverine. Like once he, once he, he was only producing for Marvel one uh, the stuff that Disney didn't own. So, like, I have to pull up his Wikipedia because the IMDb is only listing his his act his credits, but not like his history. Like, why him? Like, was he? Is he? Uh, I'm not as familiar with the uh, inner dealings with. Uh, uh, okay, so there we go. That's why he's producer. He was chief creative officer of Marvel Entertainment, um, and and one of the founders of Marvel Studios. Okay, so that's why he that's why he had such an involvement with Marvel Studios. But he resigned in '06, um, including his leadership of Marvel Studios to form his own company, Arad Productions. Although he's still producing projects for Marvel, his first feature outside of that was the 2007 film Bratz. Include feature endeavors included Ghost in the Shell, uh, something called an adaptation of Fable Haven, for those of you who are familiar with that, the Maximum Ride novel from James Patterson, Uncharted and Infamous for for 
for uh, PlayStation, as well as Hideo Kojima's Metal Gear Solid. And yet, Avia Rod's production company really isn't known for quality. Another thing he happened to produce is the is the 2017 uh, animated adaptation uh, animated series for Netflix, Tarzan and Jane. And if it's anything like his King Kong series, it look it probably looks like trash as well. Avia Rod is not a good producer. Like he just so happened to get involved with some good stuff at Marvel by by virtue of being in the right place at the right time, like. Everything after Marvel Studios he's been attached to has been bad. Anything outside of the MCU uh, after he left was bad. Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, Amazing Spider-Man, Robo Sapien rebooted, like I mentioned. Uh, Pac-Man and the Ghostly Adventures, maybe, I think that's on Disney XD for anybody who's seen that. Something called Airbound. Which is an adaptation of an, of an, of a manga and that, well anime series and the eponymous novel Bo Kenshachi Ganba to Fifteen Hikin no Nakao. I think I did all right for that. Um, but yeah, Kong he producing Netflix animated series and really bad adaptations of Japanese properties. He also happens to be one of the major. Producers of the Venom series. So apparently he's helping out with Sony's Marvel properties. But yeah, he... he, And apparently he's also... uh, Was in good with Isaac Perlmutter. The the, uh, douchebag currently in charge of Marvel. And who's basically the reason why the Netflix and the TV series can't get along with the MCU. Thanks, Ike Perlmutter, you jackass. I'm not talking about the movie. I, I've spent so much time looking into act, one of the one one of the producers, the one I actually recognize, mainly the one who's attached to all of the worst comic book adaptations in the last century. He was attached, like I mentioned, he was attached to Generation X, which was a TV movie. Fun, if you want a fun review of that, you don't have to watch the thing. Just listen to now playing's. Review of the TV mini TV movie for that and the David Hasselhoff starring Nick Fury, Agents of Shield, to get an understanding of the kind of stuff that uh, Avi Arad was producing as one of the as the chief creative officer of Marvel Entertainment. Jeez, so yeah, I mean, he happened to be involved with um, good stuff by chance because anything that was that. Because, like I said, anything that had his name attached to it after the MCU started and after he left Marvel Entertainment is the Bra- his first movie he produced after leaving Marvel was Bratz, based on the doll line. So yeah, this dude is not known for quality, and it's any wonder that somehow he gotten uh, has been like him got put in charge of Sony's Mar- Spider Verse that they want to get going. Because God forbid they just play nice and get the money by just letting Marvel do the... I'll get into that in the discussion. So yeah, this movie, Venom, it's bad. It, 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 it genuinely is awful. It really is. And that's the thing. It didn't have to be this way. Tom Hardy, perfectly solid choice to play Eddie Brock. Eddie Brock in the comics is a big buff dude... 
and you know he looked he looked Tom Hardy looks more like Eddie Brock than Topher Grace did. So that he was a good casting choice. The CGI for the most part kind of works. You know, it it manages to capture a lot of the Venom suit and the sort of squishiness that's inherent within the fact that he's a living creature and you know being inhabiting this human and covering him. It's a it's a living suit and it manages to capture that for the most part. Unfortunately, it also is just absolutely atrociously written. Um, taking a look at the screenwriters here, we've got Jeff Pinker, Scott Rosenberg, and Kelly Marcel. I have no idea who any of them are, so we'll pull up their IMDb pages. Uh, Jeff Pinker, Scott Rosenberg, and Kelly Marcel. With Pinker and Rosenberg being in charge of the screen story. So, Jeff Pink... Jeff Pinkner, Excuse me. As a producer on Fringe. Producer on Alias. Producer on The Dark Tower. As a writer, he's apparently tasked with the Mask series... Mask movie that was announced. Something called Visionaries Lights of the... Knights of the Magical Light. The Jumanji sequel. Uh, He co-wrote the Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle... Uh, he co-wrote The Dark Tower, The Fifth Wave, Amazing Spider-Man 2. Written on Fringe, Lost, Alias. Got his start as a TV writer for a lot of the Abrams productions. And then his first feature-length screenplay was Amazing Spider-Man 2, which he, all, Amazing Spider-Man 2, which he also wrote the story for. Uh, Scott Rosenberg wrote Con Air, Gone in 60 Seconds. Um, I think he was also... One of the guy. Let's see, that's producer. We don't. We want writer. He also co-wrote the Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle script. Kangaroo Jack. Got yeah. Gone in sixty six. So I'm guessing these guys wrote drafts of the script. That's why they're attached. That's the thing. You can never quite tell if, if they meet, when a writer when writers are in conjunction with one another if they're co-writing something or if they wrote a draft of the script unless. You are familiar with the process of how th- how it went down. Um, you can't be sure what how it um, how you know what the writing process was. If if Pinkner and Rosenberg were there together writing along with Kelly Marcel, or if they just so ha- or they would just write um, versions of the script like Marcel. Started off writing for episodes of the short-lived Fox series Terra Nova, which is which managed to screw up living humans living alongside dinosaurs. So yeah, but I don't blame her for that. She wrote her first movie was Saving Mr. Banks, decent movie. Uh, she wrote the screenplay for Fifty Shades of Grey, and the next thing she wrote was Venom. And then she's tasked with an Elvis Presley movie. And the Cruella DeVille solo movie. So yeah, uh, not exactly top tier writers writing this one. Uh, the two main writers uh, were were tasked with writing Sony's uh, Welcome to the Jungle, uh, Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle sequel reboot, whatever you want to call it. And that was fine, but I wouldn't have picked them to write Venom. I would have picked somebody who's more familiar with comics. Uh, but yeah, it, this, this writing is, 
I mean, the writing in Jumanji was better than this. This is some of the worst dialogue I've ever heard spoken. Like, there's the infamous turd in the wind line. There's, um, I'm trying to think. The movie is already gone from my memory. It's so uneventful. It's such trite. Uh, Tripe trash. 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 Point is, this movie stinks like a turd in the wind. Yeah, this some of the worst superhero dialogue ever written. And the fact that they thought this was clever is even worse. Because I don't know, you can't tell. Because the, there's such tonal whiplash. Parts of it, they want to take it seriously. They want to make it more grounded, more more gritty, more like a, a Dark Knight sort of thing. And then other times it's like slapstick comedy and turd in the wind. And it's like... What tone do you want to go for? Like, there's points where you can do levity comedy to alleviate a dark, you know, a dark, darker tone. But this can't decide whether it wants to be a slapstick comedy or a dark and gritty villain story. And that's the other thing, too. It gives up on being a villain story because you could do that. If you did this as the rise of Venom, as a villainous character that had to be stopped. That could work. That's something we don't really get to see all that often. But no, halfway through the movie, like two thirds of the way through the movie, Ven- the Venom, the character Venom, which is the name of they given the symbiote, uh, which completely you know spits in the face of what the actual you know the whole that Eddie Brock calls himself Venom. The suit, I don't think the suit's actually named Venom, but I'm not. I I don't want to speak on Marvel canon because God knows I'm not familiar enough with that. Um, point is. The, the character Venom, the suit, the symbiote that tells Eddie Brock, I like it here. I'm a loser too. So we can be something here. Something better than we are. That's the worst heel turn I've ever seen from a supervillain turned hero. The heel turn of Green Goblin in Spider-Man 3 was way better set up and executed than this heel turn. And people are saying, like, oh, it's, the problem is it's a PG-13. If they went for a full R, it could have it really worked. And all giving it an R rating would have done is making it gorier, bloodier. They would have allowed for more of the violence. Like, that's the thing. When Logan went R, it allowed for darker elements, much more mature themes to go on, as well as the blood and the viscera and the and the violence but the focus wasn't on the violence it was on the story being told for a more mature audience and it worked deadpool going art is more for balls to the wall action comedy and it works the people who made this movie did not intend for it to be an r-rated movie so making it an r-rated forcing a pg-13 movie which is by which by its very nature let's call it what it is this is what this is a pg movie that happened to be PG-13 because of the forced change in the system after Temple of Doom and um, Poltergeist and th- and little things of that nature during the early 80s. The darker tones that were coming into kids' movies suddenly made parents were like, and I think it was toy lines too, like they, they were selling toys for Temple of Doom and it was much more mature than parents were ready for. So by by the nature of selling toys, they decided, oh, we can't sell toys to our kids' movies, so let's make it a new rating. Now it's PG-13. It's edgier. It's, it's, you know, it's more in line with the youth of today, with the young adults of today. And it, yeah, bleh. 
It's it's a stupid reasoning, and they should just go back to the old system. GPGRX. Bingo. And it's, I mean, it's arbitrary anyway, so why bother? All PG-13 does is make PG movies try to be edgier and make R-rated movies softer. So yeah, this is a PG movie that was given a lot to say the F word. That's the only reason it's PG-13 for the most part. Like, it, the violence is very muted and, to- and off-screen for the most part. This, this thing has the Wilhelm scream in it, for God's sake. This is not to be... I can't take this movie seriously. And yet, if that's not the point, if it doesn't want to be taken seriously, it's not good enough to be taken as, like, a fun action horror comedy. It's not funny enough to be a good a good comedy. It's not... It, the action's not good enough to be considered a good action movie. The horror is not very well executed. And... No, nobody makes any sense, and by all accounts, everybody in the making of this movie realized it was going to stink, and they and it showed on their in their performances, and then they have the unmitigated gall to try and try and sequel bait this movie by teasing an iconic uh, symbiote character in the mid credits, and then. Uh, that's when my, me and my nephew left. We stuck around for the mid-credits stinger. But apparently, if you stuck all the way through the end of the credits, all that you got was a teaser for an actual good Spider-Man movie, supposedly, which is the Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse coming in, coming this December. So it's like, hey, we know you saw this piece of crap, that, so how about you, how about you get hyped for something that might actually be good for a change? <sighs> Yeah, this is, unfortunately, this isn't bad enough to top my worst of the year list, but it's definitely up there. My, I was talking to my nephew about this. This is, He and I did this for Bad Movie Squad, which is what we call seeing terrible movies together. Um, and he put it kind of put it best. It's the best of those really bad mid-2000s superhero movies. And considering it's produced by Avi Arad, that makes sense. And the, the only problem is... It's 2018. The MCU has proven we can do better. Even DC has proved we can do better with things like, you know, Wonder Woman. We can do better superhero movies. Fox has done great things with the X-Men franchise since Avi Arad left. We can do better with superhero movies. We shouldn't have to put up with relics like this. This is the kind of thing... This, The comparisons are very on point with this. People have compared this to both Steel and Catwoman. Now, Catwoman, you could get away with being a solo movie, but that movie just stunk. It had no idea how to translate the character into her own solo storyline. But at the same point, her story doesn't need Batman to work. It just didn't work in that particular movie. Steel, on the other hand, for those who don't remember, was a 90s uh, superhero movie starring Shaquille O'Neal when he tried to be an actor and his, his steel in the comics was a creation of the death from the uh, that came out of the death of Superman going to brief comic book history after the death of Superman by doomsday in that event they were there were a couple of successors to the Superman throne one was Superboy Prime um I think one was another universe is Superman or something. I know Superboy Prime was one of, was another universe. There was Cyborg Superman, and one of those successors was John Henry, 
I John Hen- was it? Hold on, now I want to get that name. I know it's tied into the actual um, Steel Driving Man, uh, John Henry Irons. There we go. Um, yeah, he's tied in literally the Man of Steel, and uh, John yeah John Henry Irons named after John Henry the Steel Driving Man, the legend uh, you know the legend from uh, American mythology, and he even has the uh, an actual sledgehammer that he wields. Uh, he was one of the successors of Superman after after his death of by at the hands of Doomsday. So you had like Cyborg Superman, you had Superboy Prime, and then you had Steel, and I think there was like one other um Superman wannabe Superman before they finally just brought back Superman. Yeah, four super Max uh well Max Landis did a thing way back when um The Reign of the Supermen uh real quick. Sorry once again this is more interesting to talk about than than the Venom movie because this is something that's actually interesting whereas the Venom movie is utter trash. Um Trying to find who the uh, the Superman Steel, Cyborg Superman, Superboy Prime, and someone called Eradicator represented Superman's status as the last son of Krypton, visored, energy powered alien. So yeah, those were the Supermen that came out of um, the death of Superman, who wanted to try and take his place. And yeah, Steel Steel managed to, to become his own character, but. The whole point of Steel was that he was a replacement for Superman. How do you do that when you don't have a Superman? Well, that's what they did in the 90s. They tried to turn, you know, they tried to make a movie out of Steel with Shaquille O'Neal. And it was, by all accounts, one of the worst superhero movies ever made. 1997. Oh, so it was later days. This was after a Kazam with Shaquille O'Neal. So yeah, this it tried to make Steel like his own superhero with that not an origin completely devoid, you know, uh, devoid of any recognition within the DC universe, which doesn't make any sense because Steel's not a strong enough character to carry his own uh, movie. He is a supporting character within the DC universe, and I mean, like he's been a recurring character within like the animated movies. Uh, he was featured in Justice League Gods and Monsters, Throne of Atlantis, The New Frontier. Um, he was in episodes of Justice League Unlimited. He was on Superman the Animated Series. Uh, he, so, I mean, he's been a supporting character time and again, but he's not... He's not... The, he needs to be featured in part with the DC Universe as a whole. You can't just cut him off from the rest of the DC Universe and expect him to be his own expect him to run a movie and yet that's what they did here with Venom and the, the least that makes more sense with Venom because Venom was an actually popular character whereas I don't think Steel was popular enough to warrant his own solo movie so yeah Venom is, I've been rambling throughout through, through all this because I have nothing to say this is Venom is a garbage movie it's a relic of the mid 2000s we shouldn't be making superhero movies like this and yet here we are, and by all accounts, it's successful, so can't wait for that Morbius movie and the Spider-Man universe minus Spider-Man. Damn it, Sony, why do you have to do this to us? Um.
What? I just want to take another look at you. In all the good times I find myself longing for change. Here's what we're gonna do. We come sing that song that I love. No, I can't do that. Here, come on, here we go. <laughs> look at me. All you gotta do is trust me. That's all you gotta do. right off the bat that I had never seen any of the A Star Is Born movies before. I know they were fairly iconic, specifically the Judy Garland version and the Barbara Streisand version were the ones that most people knew. But I was I had never seen any of them. But apparently they're based on a book I want to say from the 20s, maybe 30s. Here, let's pull up the 37 movie based on gentlemen, where's the Is it a, wait, is it an original? I thought it was based on a book or something. Fading movie, blah, 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 made, made three times. Huh. Maybe we misread that. So yeah, it's not based on a book. It was an original storyline made specifically for, um, for the screen. It was not based on any pre-existing, um, property. Uh, so yeah, um... I'll say this. Um, it's a, it's an you can see you can definitely see the influence this this storyline has had, specifically in one other uh, two other movies. The much more popular and much more iconic "Singing in the Rain" deals a lot with this storyline of changing times in Hollywood and and you know new um, new actors rising to prominence. And this storyline specifically was co-opted by the 2000, I believe, 12 winner for Best Motion Picture, The Artist. The Artist, uh, the silent movie, specifically co-opts the the storyline from A Star is Born. And realizing that now makes it even less, even less good of a movie to me. I think it's way, so the fact that it's basically a silent movie era remake of A Star is Born, only not as good, is... It's apparently good enough for the Academy, but once again, that not, has nothing to do with whether or not the movie's good. It just had producers shelling out enough money for the uh, Academy Award, Academy uh, Academy members to vote for them. God, the Academy is so corrupt. The Academy Awards are just absolutely garbage. Anyway, let's talk about uh, the four and four versions of the storyline. First up, 1937. This one was actually co-written by uh, iconic poet. And satirist Dorothy Parker, who uh, many may remember as one of the founders of the Algonquin Roundtable, which was a um, leftist sort of um, collection of philosophers and thinkers of the day. Um, She helped co-found it with uh, 
And it's called so because it's at the Algonquin Hotel. Uh, Featured Harpo Marx, Charles MacArthur, and Alexander Woolcott. So these are, you know, they were they were well regarded, you know, left left um, entertainers and thinkers and critics and writers. And it's it, there's a pretty there's a movie about it that, I, that I've been wanting to check out. Other members have included um, George S. Kaufman, Harold Ross, Brock Pemberton, uh, John Peter Tuohy. Frank Sullivan, um, Jane Grant, Beatrice Kaufman, Margaret Leach, Eva uh, Gallien, not familiar, Blythe Daly, I know, um, Mark Connolly, Franklin Pierce Adams, uh, Deans Taylor, Peggy Wood. So if any of these names are ringing a bell, these were, well, you know, these were definitely, um, were they left-leaning? I, I want to say they were... Um, Left-leaning. I know Dorothy Parker herself was very far to the left. Uh, woman after my own heart. Um, but yeah, it's just basically... Um, basically came out of a, of a joke. Because they would all meet at the Algonquin Hotel for lunch. And they called themselves the Algonquin Roundtable. And that's just basically a group of her, of, of friends. Um, you know... You know just ta- shooting, the, shooting, the, shooting the stuff. And... Ta- and Bouncing things off of one another. Um, but as people started to leave New York City, that's when they stopped uh, talking to one another. But, um, yeah, it apparent, um, yeah, apparently there's a movie about it that stars, um, what's her name? Jennifer Jason Lee, I think, as uh, Dorothy Parker. No, 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 no. Jacqueline Bissett. Where's the Thrilling Adventure Hour, The West Wing Friends? That's where it's referenced, but they even apparently they even created their own review, like a, a like a show called No Siree. Let me pull up Jennifer Jason Lee's. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm going down this tangent, but I want to point out um, the name of this movie for anyone who wants to check it out. Uh, Dorothy Parker. Here it is. Miss Parker and the Vicious Circle. Uh, 1994 movie. Uh, Alan Rudolph wrote and directed. And former Washington Star reporter Randy Sue Coburn. Uh, scripted by... Directed by Rudolph. So co-written by Rudolph and Randy Sue Coburn. Um, starring Jennifer Jason Lee as Dorothy Parker. Campbell Scott. Matthew Broderick was Charles MacArthur. Peter Gallagher was Alan Campbell. Who played Harpo Marx? Because I'm guessing he should, popped up. J.M. Henry never... Stanley Tucci is in it. Um, Rebecca Miller, Matt Malloy, Jane Addams, Tom McGowan, Dave, Nick Cassavetes, Gwyneth Paltrow's in it, Lily Taylor, Sam Roberts, Ma- Andrew McCarthy, Jennifer Beals, Wallace, Wallace Shawn is Horatio Bird. Uh, so yeah, I, this looks right up my alley. Uh... So I'll have to check it out. Uh, see if I can find it somewhere streaming, maybe or for or to rent somewhere. But yeah, it's based. Yeah, it's basically a biopic, um, probably loosely based on the creation of the Algonquin Roundtable by Dorothy Parker, uh, uh, starring Dor- starring Jennifer Jason Leigh as Dorothy Parker. So yeah, that's who. Basically, that's who helped write this initial story, which is why it had a definitely female centric 
vision and character base initially. Because what we got, what we get in the movie is it opens up literally with the script for the movie. It's very meta. And uh, Janet Gaynor plays a young woman in North Dakota who has dreams of going to Hollywood. And thanks to her grandma um, kind of fronting the money for her and also telling her never to give up on her dreams, she leaves for um, leaves North Dakota for Hollywood and eventually, you know, goes goes through the same struggles as most people trying to break into the business go through, you know, trouble finding work, uh, living paycheck to paycheck and hoping for, you know, hoping luck will finally get you a job, a job in the business. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately, um, and then that's where, uh, you get Norman Maine, who is played by, I've already forgotten his name. Um, Frederick something. Uh, Frederick March, who I'm not familiar with. I'm not familiar with anybody from the 30s version, actually. Nobody in this movie stood out to me. Um, it's very 30s, I'll say that. This is very much in the same tone as a lot of uh, uh, the guy who did, um, what's it called? Uh, Mir- not Miracle on 34th Street, that's the Santa Claus one, but... Um, um, God, why can't I remember? It's a Wonderful Life. Who directed that? Um, Frank Capra. It's definitely in that same vein. It's sh- well, not not so much, not so much that, but it's definitely in that sort of schmaltzy '30s style, and it it, it it definitely hasn't aged all that well. It's it's very of its day. And I'll say this, Janet Gaynor is a damn good impressionist. She is star quality material. I have no idea how her career turned out, but she was very good in this movie. It just, God, the the whole thing is that she's basically being groomed by Norman Maine to be his protege. And it's very creepy in retrospect. And yet he's already kind of on the downturn so I don't get how like the only she starts she gets picked up he gives her a role he helps her land a role as a has a lead across from him and she's the one who gets noticed and everyone stops paying attention to him and like there's there's like this whole bit where she's they get married and they're driving in the wilderness and she's in a trailer behind a truck and she's cooking while they're driving, which literally anybody who's driven cross-country in one of those things knows you shouldn't do. Like, that's just asking for trouble. And then uh, there's, like, this whole mental breakdown with um, Norman Maine, uh, especially after uh, people are saying, you know, what you should stay out of her way. She's the star on the rise. You need to kind of... Kind you know, kind of stand back, and meanwhile she um, is willing to give up her stardom to help take care of her husband, who she loves, but we never see why. Like that's a big thing with all of these movies. Is up until the most recent one, we never get a reason why she should care all that much about this dude. The first two versions specifically, he's a drunken reprobate. He's a belligerent douchebag. And he's kind of, he, you know, it's kind of creepy in retrospect. And yet he's supposed to be the love interest? Like, I, I don't get it. Um, 
then then after he uh, then um no spoil I guess I should put this in now From here on out, if you don't want any spoilers for these movies, just cut ahead to the discussion points. You know, discussion. Uh, basic, because I'm going to be spoiling each and every one of them to co- to relate them all. Um, the first movie has Norman Maine walk into the sea and kill himself in order to save his wife's career because he would much rather him die in order for her to succeed. And it takes her grandmother coming out of nowhere in a literal granny ex machina to bring her, lift her spirits up and tell her to keep at it and that she shouldn't um, give up on herself and that, you know, that her husband wouldn't want her to. And then she ends the movie by calling herself Mrs. Dor- Mrs. Norman Maine. And it's like. What what is that? What we were building to that moment? Why? What did that have to do with anything? That literally had nothing to do with the movie. Because it's not like she was trying to avoid his using his name her whole life or anything like that. Like what? Just this was her tribute. That was the big send off moment. Like once again, I'll get into it. But the, I'll say this: for all the themes that come arise in each iteration, the newest movie handles them perfectly. Um, spoiler alert: I really like the new version. Um, I mean, I'll say this: the the original thirty seven version does feature a lot of influences for things like a star, like a singing in the rain, like the artist, and has also de- you know does doesn't shy away from the whole idea of like depression and you know the fact that you know people all are on and off get off the wagon just because that's how depression works. You can't help it, and. That, you know, jealousy and the problems inherent within two famous people at different levels in their career trying to have a relationship and, you know, the kind of things that go wrong in your life. Like, there's a whole sub there's a whole character that appears in the first two versions that gets replaced, thankfully, by the Streisand version called Libby. He's the publicist for the for the state for the station for the uh studio and he is a raging douchebag even worse than norman Maine. and so when norman Maine is at his worst basically libby causes him to commit suicide he accosts him while he's while he's trying to get work says basically says i'm kind of glad you're finally getting your comeuppance he basically all but tells norman to kill himself and and then then Libby is for, it gets the last laugh because Norman does kill himself and he's happy about it. So yay, thanks movie. So this is not this doesn't hold up all that much, but there you can definitely see the strings to future movies. Now this now the next one, 1954, is the one that most people will know. That's the one starring Judy Garland, and it was her big comeback movie after struggling a lot with her own vices. Uh, for those who don't know, um, at, you know, on off 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 screen, uh, Judy Garland did suffer a lot through with uh, drug addiction, and so she was kind of the she was kind of Norman Maine in her own life, and. This was her big comeback role, and it did 
and it did really well at the time and it did help her regain some notoriety it's just addiction's a hell of a thing it's awful and then uh james mason who you may who you probably know today as the inspiration for stewie griffin more than anything else but he is norman main in this one this has turned into a a big broadway style musical to showcase garland's various you know abilities and talents and this and so this version instead of focusing it makes a weird shift because instead of focusing solely on uh the main character Vicky Lester Esther Blodgman I believe it folk this version the 1954 version shifts it and starts and focuses with the James Mason character Norman Maine and here he's even worse of a drunk and I know I wrote this down in my notes at 10 minutes in the movie already felt like it was being padded and that's the thing this mo- this movie is had an original runtime of 3 hours there was no reason for this movie to be 3 hours it's such an excessive waste of time and resources and energy that all amounts to basically telling people, hey, remember how great Judy Garland is, guys? And that's basically what it is, because it's just a way to showcase Judy Garland as an actress and as a singer specifically, as a performer, as a as a as a showwoman. Cause that's all it is. Like this is this isn't she isn't really like she starts off fine, but by the end of the movie, she's She's basically become what we now know Liza Minnelli to be. Just this over-the-top, melodramatic, diva performance. And I'm not all that into it. I genuinely don't care. Like, for all the talent that Judy Garland had, like, give, give me a story. Give me a movie. Give me characters and plot and something. Like... Here's my thing. I love Singing in the Rain. My least favorite part of Singing in the Rain is where it just deviates into dance numbers that don't do anything. Like, the dance numbers that showcase certain characters. You know, the ones where, um... Ah, God, why can't I remember his name? Uh... The, the uh... <laughs> the main, um... There it is, the singing in the rain. Uh, Donald O'Connor. I don't know why I couldn't remember that, but yeah, Donald O'Con- when Donald O'Connor is dancing uh, during Make Him Laugh, that's fun. It's him kind of showboating to cheer up his buddy, Gene Kelly. And then Gene Kelly, Donald O'Connor, and Debbie Reynolds dancing during um, Good-, Good Morning. It's them, you know, them kind of like, hey, it's morning. Just let's, let's just, It's like after a long night of plotting things out and planning things and trying to get a thing together it's them just kind of having this release and so there are good dance numbers that correlate to the movie but then there are just these random points that have that apropos of nothing are just like hey here's a dance number and those are my actually my least favorite parts of the movie because it has nothing to do with what's going on like i'm not saying everything has to be in service to the plot but I mean, what, if you're when you're taking like ten minutes out of out of your runtime to just showcase, like, hey, we spent he, we spent like six weeks rehearsing this dance number. You're gonna watch it, damn it. That's that doesn't make me that doesn't ingratiate me at all to it, you know. So the fact that this version of A Star Is Born is loaded with those kinds of like, hey, Judy Garland worked really hard on these routines, and you're gonna watch her. Gosh darn it. And that's not even to say that she's bad. 
Judy Garland phenomenal. She's the only reason to see this movie. Unfortunately, this movie, it, the version that you're probably going to see is the three-hour version on Amazon, which is what I saw. And in order to pad out that three hours, they used the audio track from the original dub, and they loaded it with still shots in full sepia tone while the characters are speaking. And it's the most distracting thing. Look for the theatrical cut. Do not watch the three-hour cut. It is garbage and unwatchable. Do not seek that version out. Look for the theatrical cut. It's the only watchable version. That being said, even the theatrical cut is not that great because it's still way longer than it needs to be for a, mo- for, for a movie that's essentially the Judy Garland variety hour, you know? Or three hours, depending on which version you watch. Just, it doesn't feel like... And, like, there's a whole point during during a bit during one of the bits where uh judy garland is showcasing her new next movie to uh james mason and it gets weirdly ethnic like all of a sudden she's starting she does like french accents and uh she does a puts on a lampshade it's like now i'm chinese and it's weirdly racist but that's the 50s so i'm not all that surprised it's just that came out of nowhere like what the hell's that about and then, yeah, it's it's a meandering movie that has no idea what it's doing when it isn't focused solely on Judy Garland. And in this version, instead of the granny character that was introduced uh, to bring to kind of uh, to uplift um, Vicky Lester after her uh, after her uh, after her after the death of Norman Maine, it's Libby, the douchebag who essentially caused. Norman Maine to kill himself comes in and tells tells Vicky Lester, "Hey, get get back to work." Basically, he's a douche. He's even a bigger douchebag in the fifty four version than he is in the thirty sec thirty seven version. It's it's awful. It's just yeah. Maybe the theatrical cut was better, but the three hour cut is unwatchable for the most part. And really. I can't recommend anybody. I don't get the appeal. I don't get how that's the beloved one when it, it's, it's all it is is just, hey, remember how great Judy Garland was, you guys? Wasn't Judy Garland great? It's like the member berries from South Park. Remember Judy Garland? Remember how she could sing and dance? Remember? I remember. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's all it is. It's just people really like Judy Garland. That's honestly the only reason I can think that that's the one people like more than the 76 version, which is, in my opinion, very much more superior. The 54 version is the worst version of this storyline that I have seen out of the four I watched. And the 76 version is the second best. I think the 76 version is better than the original and better than the Judy Garland version. And I will stand by that opinion. Number one, it actually has a much more coherent story for the first time. And this time, it, and by switching it from Hollywood to rock and roll, it feels less self-congratulatory. I feel like whenever Hollywood makes movies about itself, it's always like patting itself on the back, like, aren't we just the best? And by switching it up and making it about the rock and roll and record industry, it it changes perspectives. It makes it a much more interesting story than just the same old pretty young girl goes to Hollywood with, with stars in her eyes and finally makes it big here it's more interesting uh, norman is a drunk um 
John Norman, I believe, is uh, the, is how we they call him here. Um, he's played by Chris Christopherson, originally intended for Elvis Presley. Uh, I was talking with my mom about this since uh, I took her. She, well, technically, she took me. She paid, <laughs> but um, we saw the remake, and we were talking about this, and as we went to see Hello Dolly this weekend, because um, that's playing up at the Playhouse, and my parents are um, supporters of the Cleveland Playhouse, and so they get uh, free tickets. Well, not free tickets. They pay for the tickets, but uh, they get tickets to, you know, the shows that come out about once a month or so. And they had, you know, one of the, one of the, their, their other, one of their theater buddies couldn't go. So they had a seat open. It's like, hey, you want to come? And I'm a theater kid. I haven't seen Hello, Dolly before. By the way, Hello, Dolly, really solid musical. It was, it's like, it's a, it doesn't hold up quite as well. It's very 50s farce. But for the most part, I liked it. You know, the most of the songs are pretty decent. And, um... Oh, I forget who's playing in the national tour, but uh, Buckley, something Buckley. Uh, she's great as Hello, Dolly. She she gets the part perfectly. Why do you get, like, 20-something Barbara Streisand to play a role that was originated by a 50-year-old woman? Like, how do you... Uh, Hollywood's weird. Anyway, back to the this, uh, this Streisand movie. Um, this was originally intended for Elvis, but his produ- his uh, manager said Elvis can't be depicted in a negative light. He doesn't want to be depicted as a down and down and out struggling, uh, you know, drug addicted, uh, drunk, you know, star in his fading star. Because they were trying to, he was already kind of trying to get back on his feet by that point. So it ended up with there was there was also offered to Neil Diamond, who was a schoolmate of Barbara Streisand, oddly enough. But it ended up with Chris Christopherson, and he does well. He has a good singing, singing voice for the most part, especially for um, rock and roll. And um, he is able to, you know, play this character very well. He reminds me actually of uh, one of the supporting actors in the re- in this current remake, Sam Elliott. A lot of times, the voice and look, he reminds me of like a young Sam Elliott. Um, it's a funny bit, but uh, basically this time around, it switched from being a young girl comes into Hollywood is discovered by uh, this fading star, fading actor who who helps put her on the 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 road to stardom herself. And this time around, it's uh, you know a, a guy who's kind of who's still performing at really solid venues is a drunk and reprobate who's being, you know, already being set uh, to be on his way out. He happens into a, he walks into a dive bar trying to get more, trying to stay drunk. And he discovers a group called the Oreos called so because it's Barbra Streisand and two black singers. Oh, seventies. Hi, they, by the way, if somebody wants to do that again now, Two black singers and a white singer. Call call yourself the Oreos. Try it. See if it works. Why the hell not? <laughs> um, but Chris Christopherson sees Barbara Streisand, hears her voice uh, in this in this dive bar, and falls in love with it immediately. And it's like I have to talk to you. I have to learn more about you. I have you know I have to see you again. And so like there's a funny bit the next morning afterwards where he brings in pizza for breakfast. He's like, hey, uh, I'm not good with breakfast. Here's pizza. Sausage. Um, and Streisand's actually, though, she, I know people thought of this as like her ego trip as like she is the star being born, but like she's actually a pretty decent actress in this and obviously a stellar, outstanding singer. 
Uh, the only problem, both with this and with the Judy Garland version, is that I don't remember a single one of the songs. I probably, I, yeah, I probably, I enjoyed the 76 songs just because that style of music I prefer over 50s Broadway. But I still can't, I couldn't tell you any of the songs from either one, except for the one where Judy Garland gets racist for some weird reason. 50s were weird, man. Um, also, this movie features a young Gary Busey. 76 version does as uh, the main sort of producer on uh, on Chris Christopherson's records. So if you want to see a young Gary Busey, check out the 76 version. Um, the character of Libby is actually replaced. Instead of a publicist, you've got a sort of douchebag radio DJ who's always kind of chastising Chris Christopherson the whole time. And there's a fun bit early on where after the DJ is harassing him in his house... Uh, Chris Christopherson offers a case of Jack Daniels as sort of uh, a, as olive branch of like, hey, look, man, I'm sorry. Here's some Jack Daniels. And the, and the radio DJ's like, yeah, man, I've got integrity. I'm not going to take your bride, man. You're a has-been. You're a washout. And while, he's still chastising Chris Christopherson on his way out. And so Chris turns the back around, throws the case of Jack Daniels into the window to the DJ booth and shatters the glass. And it's like, call the police. You're under arrest, man. <laughs> uh, it's very rock star. It's very much a rock star moment. And it's, it plays great. Um, but yeah, for the most part, it follows the same thread line where, um, John Norman is on his way down. He's not, he's not getting as big a gigs anymore. He is not playing the number. He's kind of, he's so drunk. He's not making shows anymore. People don't want to work with him. They don't want to hire him. Meanwhile, Barbara Streisand's, um, Esther is starting to get more notoriety, play more, you know, she's starting to hear her voice user, you know, she's like one of her early ones is she gets cast in a commercial and, um, no, that's the Judy Garland one I'm thinking of. Judy Garland's voice is used in a radio commercial. (laughs) These things start to blend together. (laughs) I I binge them so close to one another, but basically, you know, um, Chris Christopherson helps uh, Esther Barbara Streisand to realize her dream of being a big time singer and they finally get you know they they get hitched and uh unfortunately while she's busy you know being a touring musician and being a popular musician he's kind of stuck at home trying to write new songs so instead of him instead of um Norman Maine the actor being at home taking um taking uh, Esther's calls. Here, it's John Norman, the musician, trying to write new music while he's, while his wife is touring and being reminded of the fact that more people are interested in her than him. And interesting thing that I haven't seen, that's only featured in the 76 version, John Norman, Chris Christopherson, cheats on Esther uh, with a reporter. A reporter went, there's a bit where a reporter wants to, to talks with Nor, uh, Norman Maine to get Vicky Lester, an interview with Vicky Lester over the phone, like, hey, can you get, get a good, good word in for me? Well, here they switched that out from a over-the-phone uh, male friend to a female reporter trying to get an interview with Esther by sleeping with John Norman. And, wow, I mean, like, the, yeah, that's the only version of the story that features that kind of just, you know, douche, like, that's the thing. John uh, Norman Maine in the, both the 50s and the 30s version is a douchebag. But he alt- never really, never actively tries to hurt his wife. 
And here it's just like I he uh, John Norman is such a drunken reprobate that he just does not care anymore. He'll you know he'll cheat on his wife. He'll just continually get drunk and just ruin his life. He does not care. Um, and then to her credit, Barbara Streisand's Esther does not put up with it one bit and tells him either get either get your act together or we're done. And he tries to get his act together. But his depression gets the better of him, and and his managers do remind him that you know she's a star on the rise. You should not try to stay in her. You should not stand in her way. And he takes that to uh, basically mean I should kill myself. And unlike the drowning, this is the first time we see a, a real shift in the in the suicide because the suicides play the exact same in the '30s version and the '50s version. Here, the suicide is by drunk driving, and it's a really interesting scene too because. Uh, John Norman tells Esther that he's going to leave to pick up um, their manager or something like that from the airport. And so he grabs a beer, is drinking it on the road, uh, listening initially to his own 8-track, gets sick of it, pops it out, puts in his wife's, and is listening to her sing as he's driving drunk down like 100 miles an hour down the highway. And it ends, and it cuts away. And when we return to the scene, it's already after the crash. It's a very just like really sober. Like that's the thing in the '30s and the '50s version. Apparently, just like the closest they could get to a suicide was he walked in the ocean and drowned. Like he didn't like. It's like one of those like float. You know, taking a Inuit like one of those weird Inuit uh, um, fables that that white people would always say, where they take the eldest member and put him on an ice floe and send him off to sea. That sort of thing. It's basically that, but a guy walks into the sea and drowns himself. It's so weird, and it doesn't really work that well. So I feel like the drunk driving makes may, way, makes way more sense and actually works better because you see that he's all he's thinking about is his wife, and he ends up listening to her music by the time he kills himself. And he's kind of just, like, given up on everything, and it's just, like, just driving fast down the road, just not... Just done with everything. And in, this thankfully changes things up. There's no Libby character to kind of boost Esther out of her depression. Instead, what happens is she listens to the bit where he's trying to record new music and he gets interrupt keeps getting interrupted by phoners. And so she hears him writing this new song about, you know, how much he loves her, how much he's never going to give up on her, how much he cares about her, and she destroys the tape in a fit of rage because you lied to me. You didn't you didn't mean anything of that. You you quit, you coward. And it's a really touching moment where she just she loses it when at you know, and destroys the last last thing her husband left her. And it's a really touching moment and so it's her she it's the only person to come help her out is is the basically the last vo- vo- you know, is the voice of her husband from beyond the grave and one last one last sort of goodbye to her and in a fit of rage she destroys that and she it's that she loses that forever and so she ends it by singing a tribute to him and that's the final song and I'll say this the songs aren't a, I I once again no, I don't remember any of the songs from any of the movies I watched. Except for the newest one. I'll say this. I prefer the 76. I don't know what critics were on about. Maybe they were just sick of Barbara Streisand by that point. Maybe they thought it was a gigantic ego trip. As though the Judy Garland version wasn't. And 
I'll say this. The 76 version is the most like an actual movie that I would watch out of all of them so far. And then we get to the 2018 version. Now, people will always deride the fact that Hollywood doesn't make anything original. Why are they always remaking the same old stories? And, well, they have a point. This is why I don't deride the concept of remakes. This is what a remake should do. Take something that maybe didn't quite work. Maybe could use some updating. Maybe could use a new take. And maybe have some new talent behind it. And every so often you get a movie where the remake is superior to the original. And this is one of those cases. It's a very rare case, but every so often those cases will happen. And that's why I never chastise a remake. Because I can deal with trashy remakes. Trashy remakes can be completely... How many people remember the Texas Chainsaw remakes by Platinum Dunes? Any of the Platinum Dunes uh, horror franchise remakes. Who remembers them at all? Who remembers... Um, ooh, what's another really bad remake? that? Pe- Who remembers the 2008 The Day the Earth Stood Still remake? Does anybody even remember that existed? Bad remakes will be forgotten to the annals of history. Because they don't... If it's bad, people will stop paying attention to it. But but good remakes are able to uplift everything that came before it. And that's what this did. This time around, you had Bradley Cooper, who's directing, writing. This is his debut for both. And co-writing songs with Lady Gaga, who helped coach him to sing while he helped kind of culture and acting. There's a great sort of dynamic um, symbiotic relationship between the two of them. And it's the best version of this storyline. It takes more inspiration from the 76 version, clearly, because we're still dealing with with, uh, musicians. And this time around, you've got Jackson Maine, played by Bradley Cooper, who is still in his heyday, which is a change. Most of the versions of the story already has a star on the fall with the male lead, when he discovers the star on the rise and the female lead. Here, he's still doing really well for himself. In fact, it isn't until he finally starts losing control of his life that he starts making a fool of himself, and that's when his star is on the fall. But he's able to hold it together for the most part in order to keep selling out arenas, keep making music, keep making money, keep going, keep the machine moving forward. But it, it, the lo- more he imbibes and the more he loses control of his own personal life is that's and that's how that's when he starts falling as a star nobody says that's the thing each iteration of this story has had people tell us that the star is a loser that he's on the downfall here nobody tells us anything we witness it we witness him still doing well for himself but lose control of his life and that's a key difference that I think each version forgot, you know, forgets to show, don't tell. And this time around, uh, Jackson Maine is the character. So kind of a new version. Jackson, uh, I guess, kind of go off of like Jackson Brown or something like that. And then Maine, Norman Maine. Uh, or maybe Jackson is sort of trying to tie into the John Norman from the 76 version. But point is, Jackson Mania was like a rock, folk, singer-songwriter type of guy. Uh, very, like, he would go on tour with a Mumford & Sons sort of style. I would imagine that. Or, um, yeah, very Mumford & Sons, I would say. Uh, although Mumford & Sons takes more inspiration from, like, folk and bluegrass. He's more straight rock. Uh, in fact, the opening number is the straight-up rock song. And it's one of the one of my favorite songs of the year. 
Um, the, I have downloaded this entire soundtrack. It is phenomenal. Um, but yeah, this version um, has Andrew Dice Clay as Lady Gaga's father. Features uh, features sequences with Dave Chappelle, as you've seen in the trailer. And Eddie Griffin makes a cameo appearance uh, at one point. So the only recognizable names really are Andrew Dice Clay, Sam Elliott, Lady Gaga, Andrew, uh, Bradley Cooper, Anderson Cooper. That would have been funny if he showed up. But uh, Dave Chappelle and then Eddie Griffin pops in for a bit. Those are the big, big names. Uh, I don't know if anybody... I don't know who the other people are. Let me see. Um, See if I recognize anybody else. Rafi Gavron plays uh, basically the manager who comes in um, to recruit Lady Gaga to be a pop singer. Uh, He's... He's apparently doing the Catch-22 miniseries for some channel somewhere next year. Um, I didn't recognize... He's apparently in Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, The Cold Light of Day, Inkheart, and Snitch. Not... that's Those aren't the movies you want to be known for. Um, Anthony Ramos plays Lady Gaga's best friend. Uh, he's from Younger on TV Land. And he's going to be in the Godzilla King of the Monsters movie coming up. But he's also going to be in Trolls World Tour as it uh, as of right now. He's he's been attached to that. Um, Alec Baldwin makes a guest appearance just as a cameo because uh, they tie into SNL. And um, yeah, um, I don't recognize anybody else uh, from this cast list, honestly. I, Brandy Carlisle and Marlon Williams play themselves, but I have no idea who they are. Um, apparently, they're performers, so they they uh, they I guess they play themselves in the movie, and they're like fictional versions of themselves. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, suffice to say that uh, what we got here is basically a vehicle for Bradley Cooper to show off that he's capable of being a good uh, writer-director behind the scenes instead of just an actor, and then helping to realize a new version of the story, kind of basically make a better version of the 76 um, movie, because that's essentially what we get here, is here, um, this time around it deals more, it actually takes more inspiration from Lady Gaga's own life, which she kind of brings into the performance, where the whole, there's a whole bit Dealing with the fact that um, she is, she's been told, uh, Allie, um, what was her last name? Allie something. Allie, just Allie, I guess. Uh, I didn't catch a last name. Uh, but her character uh, has told in the movie is told that she can't be a, a singer, they can't sell her as a singer because her nose is too big. And Lady Gaga herself, uh, before she became known for the... You know, the Madonna-esque pop star chic caricature was told early on uh, during her, probably during her days in Juilliard that she could never be a professional singer because they can't sell a woman with that big a nose and who she's not pretty enough. And they t- and she lends that to this performance. And initially, you know, like she's very nervous about getting on stage and it takes uh, Bradley Cooper's Jackson Maine to be like giving her that opportunity and her taking it for herself. And it's a very wonderful uh, character arc for her. And the thing is, that Rafi, that Rafi actor, Rafi, what was it? 
Rafi Gavron. Um, he is uh, he ter- takes uh, Allie and takes her from being singer songwriter rock to being full on bubblegum pop, and very much her transformation into this pop star is mirroring that of Lady Gaga's. It, it is definitely, in fact, there are even songs that sound like Lady Gaga songs, like like probably uh, Born Born This Way or maybe some on a Art Monster or Art something or another, whatever the fo- that her follow up album was. That that sort of mid post. Uh, Poker Face Gaga, probably the Born This Way album is when those songs would have come on, I think. But yeah, these like she's doing the dance numbers and she's putting on like she's got like there's even a point where um, Bradley Cooper jokes with her about her song lyrics and how they they sound really stupid. Like you know, what, talking about her the dude's ass and the jeans and it's like those don't mean anything. And one of their big falling out and the big fallings out in the movie has to do with the fact that he thinks she's sold out. Not in so many words. He never says you sold out. He says you're not making, you're not, you know, you're not, he, he doesn't like the music she's making anymore because it's all artificial. It's all showman. And that's the whole thing is that the, the songs she's making aren't bad specifically. It's just she is making artificial showman music. She's being, she's being more theatrical because that's what pop music is. And it's kind of a commentary on that and how there's that divide between the more authentic singer-songwriter mentality and the artificialness of pop music, as it were. Especially corporate-driven pop music, which is what Allie becomes, a very, a very um, corporate-driven pop starlet. And very much so in the same vein as uh, early Lady Gaga. But we also, But they also managed to fix up a lot of stuff for one thing. Jackson Maine is a better version of all of the characters before him because all of those characters before him were raging alcoholic douchebags. And while he is an alcoholic here, he's more of a depressive alcoholic in that he is definitely showing signs of severe depression that's gone untreated. And he is a, you know, he's a much better written and executed character than any of the ones before him. And I think it helps the fact that he is not done with yet he's still popular while he discovers and it's because of that that she's a that he's able to showcase this young up-and-comer that she gets popular off of his fame and it's because she toured with him that she became popular and was able to go solo and initially he is ecstatic for her he he, he kind of there's one bit where she thinks she's he's jealous, but he's like you can kind of tell that he is just so happy for her because she's finally finally seeing her dream realized, and he could not be more happy for her. He's also like just smashed, just completely hammered the whole scene, so it's hard to tell. But for the most part, he does not mind because especially in the early days before she goes dancer pop star. Like, before she goes full Britney, she initially is, like, doing piano ballads and is able to write the songs that she wants to write. But by the time she goes full on, like, Madonna, he's kind of lost. He kind of think he's kind of gotten sick of it. He thinks that's not making real music. And unfortunately, he's also... That's the other thing, too, is that... Not, the only thing that uh, the Norman main character type has gone through these movies is alcoholism and depression. 
And while it's an that's a you know it does its best, I think it handles the depression way better here. Especially since Bradley Cooper has gone on re- the record for saying he did suffer from substance abuse and probably suffered from a lot of you know untreated sort of trauma in his life and had to deal with that. Uh, and he gives some of that to his own performance, and you see some of that in his performance as well. And so it takes it take you know. And while this is going on, the reason he's starting to fa- fall as a star as well is he is suffering from tinnitus. He is losing his hearing. So he can no longer play music live anymore. He is losing the you know his main source of income because he can no longer physically do it, and that's a shift that is a much more interesting take than just he is depressed because nobody wants to work with him anymore and he's a douchebag. Here it's not he's not he's not solely because you know he's an alcoholic and he's you know he's he's kind of all over the place. He's chaotic. It's. The dude is physically growing older and growing in unable to do his, do what he loves, and that's all. And that's even more heartbreaking because it's something that even though it's something just completely out of his control. The only way to stop stop losing his hearing is to stop playing music, and so basically saying, "Hey, you know that thing you love? It's destroying your hearing, and you'll never get it back. And if you keep doing it." You're done. You can no longer play music. You're you're run, you're on borrowed time, as it were. So that's that's a nice change, and it's a nice addition to the whole um, the whole falling stars, you know, descent. Is that it's not just because he's a douchebag, no one wants to work with him. It's specifically he can no longer work anymore. He's not only is he depressive and he's an alcoholic, he's lost control of his faculties. Like, the whole embarrassment bit, because that's the thing. There's a sequence in this, in each iteration of the movie, where uh, Norman Maine, the male, the male on his way down, embarrasses his wife at an award show. For the first two movies, it's at the Oscars. For the second two movies, it's at the Grammys. And for the first three times, it's always just, he's drunk and he, uh, he interrupts the speech and he tells everybody off, saying, hey, what about the worst performance? Isn't that what I get? And here, it's not that. It's a, depre- it's a much more depressing, realistic take on drunkenness. He's not belligerent at people. He is ecstatic for his wife winning. And unfortunately... He embarrasses her in front of everybody by pissing himself on stage at the Grammys. He embarrasses her to no end. And in fact, you there's a point where Andrew Dice Clay is bringing him home, putting him in the shower to wash him off. And you think Andrew Dice Clay is going to beat the crap out of him. Because it's like, you embarrassed my daughter on national television at the moment of her triumph, you piece of trash. And so you think Andrew Dice Clay is going to just deck and beat the crap out of Bradley Cooper because of this. And uh, I almost wonder if that's just a dropped take. Like, maybe they did have that, but it didn't work as well. And they had to drop it. I don't know. I think that would be a great touch if, like, <laughs> you know, in a fit of rage, Andrew Dice Clay just decks Bradley Cooper one for for embarrassing his daughter like that. Just out of rage. Just out of just sudden fit of rage. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I don't want to spoil anything any much more for the new one. I just want to say that, yeah, the only other thing I'll spoil is that the death is one thing by suicide, but it's a different one. It's not drunk driving. It's not uh, the drowning because they're on a ranch now. 
much like the uh, 76 version. This is very much more in line with the 76 version than the than the 54 and 37 version. So, I don't want to give away... They, they hint at how he commits suicide in the movie. They make a reference to it, and I think they kind of took a step backward because they took away the self-realization of uh, Allie, Esther, however we want to refer to her, the female lead... The star. Um, I kind of like how Esther in the '76 version just re, you know, kind of, kind of pulled herself up. She didn't need an ex machina to kind of cheer her up. I will say that as opposed to the Libby publicist character or the granny coming in to save the day, I kind of like that it's just after everything that's happened. Sam Elliott, who doesn't play his uh, Bradley Cooper's dad, but plays his older half brother. Very interesting dynamic. Very interesting choice. Also, Bradley Cooper is totally channeling his inner Sam Elliott. He he is so doing a Sam Elliott impression in this, it's not even funny. Um, he's also nailing it for the most part. So, yeah, especially when they're talking to each other, you hear the dueling Sam Elliott. It's, it's kind of brilliant. But um, Sam Elliott comes in after everything, and um, Allie is very, you know, is still dealing with the loss. And Sam Elliott's character is kind of rem- reminiscing about... Uh, Jackson and how much she meant to him and how much he cared. That's the other thing too is that they never really it's always somebody coming in and reminding them hey, here's these things that he's been doing behind your back to show how much he loves you. And it kind of takes a step backward in that sense. I kind of like how uh, you hear him saying these things to her through his voice after his death in the form of a cassette and I don't know, maybe a, a video, like he's FaceTime, like he's recording something on like Facebook video or something to try and send to her, and she's reminiscing through those, or um, something, like, you know, something like that. I don't know, so, just something where she hears these things from him, uh, or she finds these things on his computer or something. I don't know. I think going back to the whole somebody else tells her to feel better. It's not as bad. I'll say that much. Sam Elliott doesn't tell her to cheer up. It's more like, hey, you know what? He loved you. And, you know, he he definitely knew that you were the real deal. And he knew that you were going to go far. And he trusted in you. And he was right. That sort of thing. So it's just it's not just saying to cheer up, which is what the other the first two versions did. This one is more like, yeah, this this is sad. But, you know, he really did love you. And he really did. He really did treasure your your fa- your rise to fame and he knew you, you were capable of it and then it ends with what i'm thinking is going to be their oscar nomination what is going to be their submission for best original song which is um shoot i've already forgotten the name of it uh i added it to my itunes though so i can pull it up real quick um let me see I'll never love again. It's a, it's the best Mariah Carey song never written by, never sung by her. You know, this is this is a full on Mariah Carey ballad, and Lady Gaga nails it. And I would be surprised if that if that wasn't their submission for the Oscars, because uh, that's because it's it's the last song on the um, soundtrack, and it's the one that has its own extended version instead of just taking from the film, which is what most of the other ones do. So I'm assuming that's going to be their submission. Because that's usually how it works. It's the one that's for the credits or the one that's featured last on the soundtrack. That's usually the one that gets submitted for the for you know for your consideration to the Oscars. So we'll see. 
Suffice to say that this is the definitive version of A Star is Born. Gaga is the best actress to play the role. Better than Streisand, better than Garland. Which is another thing I noticed. It's fun to think about. Is that you've had gay icons play the lead females in the last three versions of this movie. Judy Garland played it. Barbara Streisand played it. Lady Gaga played it. So these are those are very three different generational gay icons playing this female lead. It's very interesting to think about. Uh, I do like the addressing of alcoholism and depression, especially for somebody who's dealing with the loss of their career. Um, how the fickleness of stardom is. I'm kind of glad that the last two entries didn't have a Libby character because he's such a piece of trash. Such a despicable character. Never gets his comeuppance, and it's just the worst. The Libby character here is kind of the manager, played by Rafi Gavron. Um, he doesn't get his comeuppance either, but none, none of those characters get their comeuppance for how they treat, for basically leading to the death of the main the main male lead. And the fact that he's the one to t- then tell Judy Garland to pull herself up by her bootstraps and be, this is not what he would have wanted. That's the other thing. The whole ending point of the of the movies have always been, my name is Mrs. Norman Maine. Mrs. You know, I am Mrs. This character that just died. I am ta- I am co opting their name in honor of them for the life that they led and for giving me this rise. The only one where it actually made sense was in this version because the whole time there was never because that's the thing. What does them calling themselves Mrs. Norman Maine mean? In any of the other versions. It doesn't mean anything. Because it's not like... Because all their ver- all their romance was... Was just douchebag alcoholic... F- you know... Grooms a young... You know... Naive woman... <laughs> with dreams of stardom... To be his protege. Whereas here... You had an actual real relationship build. The Barbara Streisand and Nick Chris Christopherson version had that too. But not as... I think the Gaka... Bradley Cooper one worked way better. It was much more believable, much more realistic. And at no point was there ever... Like, that's the whole thing, is that Allie, take, Allie was always just the singular name Allie when she was a pop star. She was really honoring and paying tribute to the loss of her husband by saying, my name is Allie Maine. And then this song is what my, this is the last thing my husband wrote. And I hope he's, you know, he's up there to know that... Um, I love him as my, and then there's the last tribute song, which is I'll never love again. And I think the 18, once again, I think the final version makes sense. The, the final bit where she says, I am Mrs. Maine. I am this, I am the, I am the, uh, dead male's wife. You know, I'm, I, you know, I am miss, I co-opting that name and acknowledging it actually makes sense for the first time. Because it does like it was it was it was not like it was even a thing in the other versions. It didn't matter. And why were they paying tribute to a drunken reprobate? I mean, the Christopher Stafferson one kind of made sense because you kind of had a you actually had a decent relationship there. Here, it makes the most sense because she stopped using her uh, last name. She was only known by a singular name, and so this is her become coming kind of stepping down from the whole persona of Allie and being known as. Allie Maine, widow to the late Jackson Maine. This is the this is my tribute to my to my husband whom I love. 
the first time it actually makes sense. And a lot of the stuff finally starts to make sense in the storyline. Because, hey, Bradley Cooper knows how to write this kind of stuff. Who'd have thunk? Fun fact, he's actually going to be writing a Leonard Bernstein uh, uh, biopic coming up next. So I'm very interested to see that. So yeah, out of all of the A A Star Is Born franchise, each version of the story, I would rank them from top to bottom. 2018, 1976, 1937, 1954. If you're a big fan of the Judy Garland one, maybe tell me why you like it. Because I did not like very much of anything about that. I mean, Judy Garland is good, but Judy Garland alone would not make me want to sit through three hours of cobbled together hodgepodge mess like that. I would much rather watch Judy Garland in a good movie than to just watch a tribute to the late Judy Garland. So yeah, um, if you're going to watch any of the Star is Born, watch the new one. It's the best one. It's the most well executed. It's got the most memorable songs out of all of them. And... It's it's got the best version of the storyline that I've seen. So that so that's that's all my piece. And we're gonna take a quick break, and we're gonna have a short discussion on uh, the monopolization of IPs. Did you know Ash's name in Japan is Satoshi after Pokemon creator Satoshi Tajiri? Did you know Roroni is a neologism created by the original author of the Roroni Kenshin manga? Did you know Godzilla's Japanese name is a portmanteau of gorilla and whale? If you want to learn about these subjects and more, listen to Majide, a Westerner's view of Japanese media and culture, available only on the Gumby Cat Network. rambling and coherent mess I'm guessing um so to keep things pretty brief the whole point of this discussion is to kind of tie into the fact that a lot of people want the Disney to own all of the Marvel properties they don't want the they don't want they they kind you know the Fox deal is kind of solidified to those properties but they're still missing the universal stuff with Namor and the Hulk and Sony still has a deal with... They have a deal with them, but Sony's still doing their own stuff with Spider-Man. And... Part of me is like, I would much rather it be like with DC. Because that's the thing. Nobody minds that Warner Brothers owns all of DC. All of the IP rights to DC. They don't mind that it's not split up like this. But it's, but when Disney tries to do tries to do the same for Marvel and coalesce the properties under one banner... Everyone worries about the monopolization of IPs. And it makes more sense because Disney is much more, more notorious for changing copyright law in order to, to further profit off of their own IPs. Because they would much because ra- Disney is not the best, you know, the most scrupulous business entity. I mean, nobody is. No, anybody who does business at a high enough level is going to be, none of them are going to be uh, ethical 
by any means. They're all going to have skeletons in the closet, and it's all going to be, you know, hush money under the table and all kinds of dirty dealings, and it's all and all kinds of repercussions that have long-lasting effects on the cultural landscape. And Disney is no exception. Disney is notorious for all kinds of 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 negative practices between the way you know treatments of minorities in their media to treatments of their employees in the parks to the you know toward the monopolization of ips but that's the thing disney is not the only one at this you know the only you know entity in this battle because that's the thing anybody who studied media knows can, and can tell you that all of the the illusion of choice exists because the big companies who do own the IPs and the various channels that exist want to keep making business on their end and want to keep amassing vast amounts of money for their own benefit and for their own gain when it doesn't it should not be that everybody should be their own individual entity ultimately i mean there could be you know conglomerations and and cooperations along the lines of Sony and Disney with Spider-Man but ideally, you would not want major companies like Disney, Viacom, News Corp, um, Com- Comcast. You don't want singular entities owning all of the properties. That monopolization is a, is, will, will only do more harm to the business landscape in the long run. In fact, that was a whole big thing during the lead up to the Great Depression is this, you know, this, this conglomeration of companies amassing all of the wealth for themselves and not allowing for real competition. Think about this. There is no real competition anymore because ultimately the people who are competing are, are essentially competing against themselves. I mean, for all intents and purposes, the company, there are no real, you know, I mean, there, you do see on the smaller end of things. I bring up A24 and Neon specifically. The two of them are some of the biggest indie studios at the moment. Them and Bloomhouse. I think Bloomhouse is more, but Bloomhouse is more for horror. Neon and A24 are more for dramas and more, inter, you know, more, more, um, you know, more specifically indie genre films. Sort of, you know, independent feeling. And I mean, they're not meant to be mainstream. They're meant to be smaller, sometimes even art housey style films. And Neon is on the rise, and it's serving as great competition for A24, which can only mean good things because it means that they'll be competing for the same types of stories, and they'll be competing for the for the attention of the audience, and that can only mean good things. I am I do agree that competition is healthy. It competition in that sense allows for you know when you see hey that guy's doing something like that, we should do something similar. Think of it this way: Coca Cola. Pepsi, Dr. Pepper, all their own entities, all competing against each other for what people want to drink. And so they'll play around with tastes, flavors, formulas. You know, sometimes it won't work. Sometimes it'll backfire, but sometimes you'll get a hit. And the whole point is to always be vying for, you know, for your own, for, for that piece, for people's attention. And that's not a bad thing. The op, the actual choice for different things is a good thing. You want those choices. Because that's the other thing. Coca-Cola and Pepsi and Dr. Pepper 
don't crack down on the off-brands. That's the other thing. They don't buy up the Walgreens brand of soda or the um, or what the Acme brand. You know, stores will have their own individual brands of the soda that are, don't taste quite the same but have that same essence. The cola flavor, the the lemon lime flavor, the the whatever you call Dr Pepper flavor, you know that 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 sort of car I guess caramelly, uh, you know amalgam soda, the orange soda, the you know the the fruity sodas, and that having that but the, but when push comes to shove, the brand names aren't edging out the other off brand names. To non-existence. Whereas in Hollywood, the proliferation of IPs essentially means that fewer movies will get made. I mean, people brought this up during the Fox buyout. No matter who bought out Fox, fewer movies were going to get made. Because that would be one less studio to make movies. Because whoever owned the studio was only going to buy it for the IPs so they could be owned by the new entity. And that would mean one less studio pumping in money to make new movies. And here's I'm of two minds for that. You don't want a singular entity owning all of the IPs. As much as people will be like, yeah, let Disney own all, everything. Who cares? I mean, I'm sure they'll do fine with it. You don't want a singular entity in charge of that. Because that means that's only one point of entry. You want those at, at multiple points of entry. You want those various aspects. You don't want one singular entity vying for control. You know, hammer. You know, with a with a fist over all. You know, you don't want the Thanos having all of the gems. You want those gems spread out. You want everybody to have access to the gem. You don't want the gems to be in all all within the Infinity Gauntlet and in the hands of one um, wielder. That's no good for anybody. That's, and of course, people were making that observation after the Fox buyout with the with Mickey Mouse wielding the Infinity Gauntlet of the of the various uh, IPs, and yeah, that is bad. It is very bad. But here's the thing: the argument that there will be fewer movies made, maybe from major studios. But here's my thing: I see movies every week. And I can tell you this much. It'd be f- I'd be fine with fewer new releases. There weren't as many new releases all the time. I mean, people who are old, you know, older people, your parents, your grandparents, you know, people who are listening, maybe you, listener, may, will even remember a time when there wasn't a new release every single week. There was always, it maybe took a couple of weeks. Maybe it took a whole month before a new movie came out. You didn't. There wasn't a rush to always pump pump out a new movie every week. And while it's good to keep filmmakers employed, on that aspect, I understand because I know guys like Dan Olson and I think uh, Leon over at Renegade Cut were talking about the the downside. You know, the whole fewer movies getting made and as as a downside of the of the merger. I'm more of the mindset that for audiences, fewer movies getting made is it is kind of a good thing because you because you don't want it to be 
because of monopolization. I'm not saying that. But for me personally, I see so many movies and most of them don't need to be released in theaters. Most of them are just completely forgettable garbage. They were only there so that people got paid. People got paid to work and people got paid to get this thing out and it was just workmen. It was just it was a work it was a workman movie. It did not it, nobody had any real passion for it. It was just there to make the studio try to get the studio to recoup some money by pumping out something to for audiences to see. And if we had fewer of those movies, I'd be fine. I would much rather there be fewer movies if it meant that the movies would be better. But I also understand that just because there are fewer movies doesn't mean they'll automatically get better. I'm not saying that either because there's no I obviously know that there's no guarantee that there by there being fewer movies that they'll be better. But like I said, I'm of two minds. I don't want the I don't want singular entities running and owning the all of the intellectual properties being made into film. That's all, that's a very dangerous precedent. And unfortunately, the only way to undo that is to start writing antitrust law into intellectual property. That means you have to stand against the biggest companies in the world and tell them no. What you're doing is dangerous and we won't allow it. And they will st- and they will spend all kinds of money to ensure that what you do doesn't get done. But you but it needs but the only way to see real change is legally because they obviously can't be tr- one thing that I have seen time and again is that businesses will not, for the most part, self-regulate. I mean, sure, though, you'll find businesses that try to self-regulate, but only after somebody points something out that they're doing wrong. Self-regulation by a business is only as is only for positive PR. It's a publicity stunt. They're not actually trying to better themselves. They're trying to make themselves look good by saying, hey, look, we're taking care of things. We're cleaning house. We're not, we're doing a nice thing. Don't just, you know, don't get in our, just stay out of our way. And that's why I'm always of the mindset that you need exterior forces to prevent businesses from going overboard. That was the, that was the only thing that helped out against the Great Depression and help, and the only time that those for, that those entities were weakened led to the recession in 2008. Not to get too much into politics, but yeah, when you weaken the the, ba- the balance that is needed in order to prevent businesses from going overboard and from exploiting people, when you undo those those barriers that are put there to prevent them. All of a sudden, the people wonder, oh my god, how did this bad, how did we get this flood? All we did was take down the levees, you know? <laughs> Imagine, you know, that's kind of what rampant capitalism will do. There is no ethics, it's only what will benefit us. But I'm getting too much into, into politics now and into economic theory. <laughs> uh, suffice to say, but I mean, it is tying, it is, it is part of the Hollywood model. Hollywood model is very much so a business entity and a business venture, and it's very much capitalist by nature. And I, you know, I'm I'm of the mindset that, you know, the the model could work, but the way it's working now is leaning into 
what was but what happened what ultimately led to the busting up of the major studios back in the day because if you remember in the 30s and 40s the studios ran everything theaters they ran uh, actors they were in they were they had an iron grip over everything and it took the government to interfere with antitrust laws to break up these major studios in order for any real change to happen and unfortunately through the guise of corporations and and these major conglomerates merging and and forming to forming in order to further the pursuit of uh, you know infinite number of monies that <laughs> That 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 is the ultimate. I mean, that's the whole thing. Is that people will always say that bubble is going to burst, whether it's the blockbuster bubble, whether it's the IP bubble, something is going to burst because they're always demanding more, and that un, and if it goes unchecked, then it is going to happen, and it's and the system will collapse. Part of me wants that to happen just because it, they the people at top deserve it, but it's not going to hurt the people at the top. It's going to hurt the people at the bottom. And that's how it always works. People at the top never get hurt by the actions. Only the people at the bottom. I, I do not intend for this discussion to get too much into, uh, into philosophy and theory. <laughs> um, but yeah, point is, I guess the point I'm trying to get across is that I am against the monopolization of IPs. I, I, I can't stress that enough. I don't think that the fact the argument of there being fewer movies works as well from an audience perspective. It only works from an employee's perspective. Like you yourself making fewer movies, that's a bad thing when you when your job is to make movies. But at the same time, they also can't guarantee that there will be fewer movies made because in the wake of that studio of Fox's IPs being bought out. Maybe Fox themselves won't be making fewer movies. Maybe in lieu of Fox making movies, Disney would use that money from the Fox properties to continue to make movies with those IPs. It's hard to say. I mean, that's the other thing is that there will always be movies being released on a weekly basis. I don't see that ending anytime soon. And I think think if if the studio bubble pops... If we start to see the big budget movies finally bring these studios, you know, under, hope maybe they'll maybe we'll start to see the dissemination of these IPs and of these minor studios. Maybe we'll stop seeing the conglomeration of media companies like we like we've done. Maybe they'll get bought out by Chinese companies. I mean that that is a very distinct possibility. Chinese Chinese uh, producers are already. You know, finan- you know, they're financing a lot of major movies because that's where a lot of the money is coming from. And that's not even to say it's a bad thing. It's just it's just a matter of fact. It's That's where the money's coming from a lot of times, especially for you know mid-tier budget movies that ne- don't necessarily have the backing of things like Disney or Comcast or Sony. You know, smaller mid-tier studios will have to rely on, like, the Hawaii Brothers, which is one of the biggest ones that I see. And... It's hard, you know, it's hard to say. Financing, you know, if if people in America aren't going to finance and you need to get your movie made, you'll, the nice thing about having an international marketplace is that you can search for German companies, UK companies, South American companies, Chinese companies, Japanese companies, Korean companies. Who knows? If you got the money, you're willing to make our movie, we'll take your money. (laughs) You just got to be careful that, because that's the other thing too, is that 
no matter where the money comes from, there's always strings attached. That's always been a, the thing with art. Very, I mean, even when it was back when, during the time of, like, patrons. Literal patrons, like, wealthy aristocrats and royalty and church officials patronizing the arts by spending money on artists. They would always be painting something for that person. There's no guarantee that what the artist was painting was of their, you know, their own volition. It was mainly out of patronage, out of, it was a paycheck. You, I want you to make this thing for me and then I'll pay you money. And that's the only thing I'm always wary of with producers and financiers is that you can never quite tell what, how much influence they have. Because especially if it's coming from China and they want it specifically made for Chinese, you know, having certain specifications to play better in their own country, it's hard to say. Uh, I don't know enough about the industry. Maybe they're, hey, if you're an insider, if you actually work within the Hollywood financing side of things and you listen to this podcast, I would love to talk to you more about it. So send anything to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. But I think I've rambled enough about this. Uh, yeah, I just, I'm very much of the mindset that I don't want one company owning all of the intellectual properties. Much as I like Disney and what they've been doing with like Marvel and the Star Wars for the most part, I don't want them owning everything. I, I don't even like what they're doing with some of the stuff they already own. So, you know, stuff that's already theirs. Like, I'd be okay with breaking up the big studios and the big media conglomerates. I would I would love for a Teddy Roosevelt to come in and bust all these major corporations up. That'd be great, but I don't see it happening. So I think we'll end on that downer of a note as we head into the box office report. And now the popcorn junkie checks in with this week's box office report. I kind of already hinted at it before, but. Yeah, the movie I liked it was not going to be the one to top the box office this weekend. So, uh, if we take a look at... Uh, oh, apparently The Hate You Give is be- was released in limited uh, theaters this time. How many? 36! So that should be coming out pretty soon. And I'm excited for that one coming up. I think it's coming up later this month. Uh, but as uh, things go, we saw dropping out. Crazy Rich Asians is finally out of the top seven. Um... White Boy Rick dropped out of the top ten altogether. Hellfest dropped down to number eight, so they're on their way out. Uh, number seven this week is The Nun, which brought in $2.6 million domestically. And combined with its full runtime, full domestic gross so far of $113 million, And its foreign mark and combined with the foreign market, we've got a full uh, run so far of $346.6 million. On a $22 million budget. So. Good for you guys. You you, you did. You did good. Even though your movie is garbage. <sighs> hey. Not just because something is good. Good things don't get popular. And bad thing And bad. And bad. And being popular does not always a sign of quality. Anyway. number Dropping down from number four to number six. Is a simple favor. Which brought in $3.4 million bringing its domestic gross up to $49 million and its worldwide gross so far up to $76 million. So this is already on a, it's already profitable from what I remember. I think it's like a $30 million budget. So 
it's already made back uh, budget and marketing, so this is already in the black. And good for Paul Feig. Um, I, how is this for his direct? For uh, this is his best performing. Uh, is it? No, that's that's in order of date. Uh, let's take a look at Lifetime Gross. Uh, this is already doing better than Uncompany Miners. Uh, it's not doing as well as his stuff with uh, um, Melissa McCarthy, though. Uh, it you know that stuff was like in the hundreds of millions of dollars, whereas this is still barely making it over fifty. So it's not his highest grossing movie, but it's doing well for itself, which is good. Dropping down from number three to number five is A House with a Clock in Its Walls, which brought in $7.2 million, bringing its domestic gross up to $55 million, and its worldwide gross up to 793 So, just barely making back its... Bu- it's made back its budget of $42 million domestically, thankfully. But it's... So it's not a full... It's not a... It's not a complete flop, but it's not... I don't expect to see any sequels anytime soon. It just wasn't performing well enough to really warrant any more. Which is kind of sad, because I really like that one for the most part. From Dropping down from number one to number four, Kevin Hart's Night School brought in $12.2 million this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to $46.7 million, and its worldwide gross up to $58 million. $58.7 million on a $29 million budget. Pretty much made... Pretty much already profitable after what two weeks uh, yeah two weeks this movie's doing fine for itself so kevin hart still got it <laughs> even though i didn't care much for the movie it hey people people dug it enough uh managing to make more than uh managing to stay above night school on week two is smallfoot which brought in 14.9 million dollars this weekend at number three Bringing its domestic gross up to $42.7 million and its worldwide gross up to 75.2. Which, did it say what its budget was on Wikipedia at all? Let me see. $80 million with a... So after two weeks, it's only made back its budget. Not so hot for Warner Brothers. Maybe it'll have some longer... Like, let me take a look at what... The only thing coming out uh, next week... We got Goosebumps next week. And, um, that's the only family film until The Nutcracker, I guess, in November. And then that's when you start to get, like, Dr. Seuss the Grinch, Fantastic Beasts. So, we'll see if, uh, this has any more legs for the rest of October. But as we get into the Halloween season, I don't think families are going to be going to see Smallfoot again. But, who knows. Uh, I hope it does well on DVD, though. Because it's a it's a it's a decent movie. It picks up in the second half, but yeah, it's not too so hot for Warner Brothers animation. Premiering at number two, it with forty one point two million dollars is A Star Is Born, which uh, combined with its worldwide gross with with the foreign market opening weekend release, we've got an opening weekend but a uh, gross of fifty six point six million dollars worldwide. Now, if we pull up, unfortunately, Box Office Mojo doesn't list the budget for this one. I can't imagine it's over $30 million. Let me see. $36 million. I was right. Uh, So, it's already made back its budget. 
It's got, and uh, I think by the next week it'll make back its uh, its marketing. So hopefully by next week we'll start to see it, especially since the big push for Venom is already done with. And I don't think Venom will see repeat viewings. Whereas I think more people will want to go back and see A Star is Born, honestly. I would assume so. I don't think, I can't imagine Venom getting repeat viewing, honestly. Because, hey, number one, premiering at $80 million this weekend was Venom with a $100 million budget and a, but, and a, oh, oh, I knew this was going to happen. I knew this was going to happen. You know, people were saying, oh, I was talking about this in uh, one of my Facebook groups about movies and people were saying, oh no, foreign markets aren't going to get into this. They don't know anything about the character of Venom. They don't really care about this guy. I, I thought, okay, that's good. Well, you know what? The foreign markets outpaced the, the, uh, Domestic markets, $125 million in the foreign markets, most likely from China, I'm guessing. China, Russia, I don't know, whoever, whomever, wherever they release this thing. And the foreign markets saved this movie. It, it made, it's profitable now, thanks specifically to foreign markets. I don't want to sound xenophobic or anything like that. When I say that, but just, I just wish, you know, other countries wouldn't reward crappy movies because uh, I, I want, and I want to know why I want to know why this is because Tom Hardy is because they know the character of Venom is because they don't care if it's good. I want to know why they support this kind of crap. So yeah, if you live in a foreign market, China, UK, uh, you know, continental Europe, South America, you know, India, Asia, Australia. If you're listening to this and you live in a foreign market outside the U.S. and you have some insight into why audiences will support garbage like this, let me know. Because, I mean, yeah, I'm not surprised that – I'm kind of surprised that it grossed $80 million opening weekend. I really hope there's going to be a big drop-off and that – but I, it, it's already profitable. This already warrants sequels. They're gonna do a Venomverse. Why do you people do this to me? Why do you people... Do you... Do people want me to suffer. They want me to keep reviewing cra crap like this. I can't imagine it's because people like... Of course I can't. This thing's got like 6 out of 5... 6 out of 10 on IMDB. People will like literally anything. People, there is no, there is no judging of taste because tastes can mean literally anything. Does not matter, you know. People will like just about anything. <laughs> I should not be surprised. I should not be surprised. It made back all of its money, and it became profitable its opening weekend. Whoever that person that said the foreign markets wouldn't carry this movie is a liar. I knew this was going to happen, and yet I'm still disappointed. Anyway, stay tuned for Morbius versus Venom in the upcoming years because Sony now has the reasoning to do it. And unless Disney just says, no, nah, no, nah, we're not. If you're going to keep doing that, we're taking Spider-Man and you're done with him. Because that's the only way I can see Dis th th Sony being stopped from doing this anymore. <sighs> anyway. That was this week's box office report. 
So with the past ta- with the past over with, let's take a look forward to the weekend ahead in trailer talk. Coming this summer. It's trailer talk. Rated R starts Friday. So from two new releases to three this weekend, we've got uh, some major stuff coming up. 20th Century Fox is going to be releasing uh, Bad Times at the El Royale, which is going to be my main... Mm-mm. I'll have to decide what order I talk about them in. Because I'm pulling them up in order of uh, alphabet- in order of uh, alphabetical... Order- in order of alphabetical... In alphabetical order. <laughs> um, call me Jackson Mink because... Uh, I shouldn't be this bad because I only have the one beer. Anyway... Um, yeah, opening next week, let's take a look at what, uh, IMDb lists. So, IMDb seems to be releasing them in reverse order, so I think I'll go with the IMDb order. So, I think we're going to start with, um, the aforementioned Goosebumps sequel, which is coming back, and I don't think it, I think it, they, oddly enough, after the success, the, you know, the mild success of, uh, the House of the Clock at its walls, they they kind of gave away that somebody was indeed returning for the sequel after never bringing up anything. So let's take a look at the trailer for Goosebumps 2, Haunted Halloween. Tony Pictures Animation. Surprised? I guess? I guess so? Because they're doing, um, based on the best-selling book by Arl Stein, right? 62 books. 400 million copies sold. Quit trying to pimp his bibliography. And in one day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The stories came to life. Yeah, thanks for the recap of the previous movie. We know, we know that. Yeah, we remember the last movie, guys. This October. It's starting to look like Halloween around here. I don't think this place is giving out candy. Discover the one book. No one was meant to find. Haunted Halloween. Did you miss me? Ah. The knockoff Jack Black doing slappy is terrible. You discovered a walking, talking dummy and you didn't tell me? Okay, well, he seemed like a really nice guy at the start. Uh. God, this looks even worse. They're moving. So tiny and cute, what can they possibly do? Sonny, they're just gummy bears. Written by Rob Lieber and directed by Ari something or another. I didn't catch the the uh, uh, the director's name, but yeah, who are these? Who's Ari Sandel? Who is best known for West Bank Story? Oh, that's right, The Duff. And when we first met for Netflix, which I hear is one of the worst original movies Netflix has ever released. 
Qaddafi goes Hollywood. Oof. Uh, yeah, some. Yeah, not exactly the. That's the thing. Some people like the Duff and fine enough, and that's fine. Just I did not think that was a good movie. It was it felt like a wannabe Mean Girls, and yeah, I'm not interested. And that does not invoke confidence in me. And then the writer is Rob Lieber, who is best known for Oh Joy, Peter Rabbit, and Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Oh god. This will be interesting because maybe this will unseat Peter Rabbit on my worst of the year list. That's right, Peter Rabbit is on my worst of the year list because I don't. I don't get why people excuse this movie. It's Alvin and the Chipmunks with British accents. Why are you okay with? <sighs> so I've got that to look forward to. Anyway, next up, Damien Chazelle's new movie, uh, the biopic of Neil Armstrong, First Man. Get it. He's looking at the moon because he's going to go there. The vehicle's not safe. We need to fail. We need to fail down here so we don't fail up there. Please let the light shine. This movie takes, this trailer's taking itself way too seriously. We'd like you to command. Nothing, honey. It has gone to the moon. I mean, Claire Forge at least giving giving a damn. That's nice. We have a goal for main engine start. Academy Award winner Damien Chazelle, director of La La Land and Whiplash. Do you question whether the program's worth the cost in money and in lives? What are the chances you're not coming back? Four. Those kids, they don't what are the chances that Ryan Gosling will actually act in this movie? Down. Two. And you're going to prepare them for the fact you might not ever come home. One. Do you think you're coming back? Nice delivery, kid. Just dynamite. Do you think you're ever coming back, Dad? That was the best line delivery I could give. Sorry, Mr. Chazelle. We've got this under control. You're a bunch of boys. You don't have anything under control. Will they let his wife come to uh, Houston to stand there and chastise the NASA on how they're how they're actually doing? First man. I I don't think I'm breaking any new um I mean that's the thing. Conservatives are railing against this movie because it's um omitting the point where Neil Armstrong actually plants the American flag on the moon. And I'm kind of with them, but not for the same reason. It's not a nationalistic thing for me, it's a historical thing. I mean that's a thing that he did. It's his most iconic moment. This is a biopic about Neil Armstrong. 
It's like say it's like making a biopic about Martin Luther King and then not and then omitting the the I have a dream speech. Like, oh, here he is at the at the Washington Monument or uh, Lincoln Memorial or wherever he was giving the speech, but we're not going to have him actually deliver the I have a dream speech because why would we do that? And then, of course, there's also articles I saw being circulated that even Neil Armstrong's um, descendants, his uh, children and his grandchildren are like, that's not anything like what happened. Like, you're that's nothing like it's the same thing that I saw going around um, from uh, Marston, uh, Dr. Marston's granddaughter uh, and the wake of Professor Marston and the Wonder Women were just like, no, you just made stuff up. That's not my father. That's not my grandfather. You're just making stuff up now. And. Damien Chazelle is just like, no, trying to have a vision here. And I'm like, are you finally going to see what I saw? Because when I first saw Whiplash, I could automatically tell that Damien Chazelle was a pretentious twat. I mean, that's the thing. I I, I don't, and that's, and that's another thing. Uh, Kyle Culgren, I just saw, did a, his recent video on pretension and pretentious and the term pretentious and how is art itself pretentious because it's it deals with the it comes from the, the from the term pretendo in latin which is to you know pretend, you know which ultimately that it ties into the word to pretend so isn't all art pretentious in a way so but i mean in the in the so i guess pretentious isn't the right word in that sense because i mean by the very notion of this show this show is pre, not really pretentious because i'm not pretending to be anything actually I'm not pretending to be something that I'm not. I'm giving you my honest opinion. But I guess the pretension, I guess in that sense, in the terms of pretending to be something, I don't know if Damien Chazelle is being pretentious. I think he's just thinking, he's very narcissistic. I'll say that. He's very high on himself. So I think, I think we should uh, deviate from the term pretentious when it comes to guys like Damien Chazelle or guys like um, uh, whoever did the Tree of Life, Terrence Malick, really are, like the kind of stuff that Kyle Cogren reviews. I think we should deviate from the term pretentious for those things and just call it what it is. It's narcissistic filmmaking. It's auteurs thinking that they're making something more than what they are, and they're not. This, and that's the thing. Pretension makes it sound like they. They know it's not what it is. They know they're what they're saying is false. They just are saying it in order to pretend to be something bigger than themselves. I don't think Damien Chazelle is pretending to be anything other than who he is. I just think he's a narcissistic, you know, over you know, overrated director. I hated Whiplash. Not I hate it. I didn't. I didn't like Lip Whiplash mainly because I think Miles Teller is a bat is is a douchebag. You know, is too he's too comfortable playing douchebag characters, and the character in Whiplash is a douchebag. And I I was perfectly fine with him being abused by J.K. Simmons because who cares about this little 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 wannabe jazz drummer? Like, who cares that this white boy think wants to be the best jazz drummer? It's like, oh, it's about putting all of your blood, sweat, and tears and being the best that you can be. No, it's about being an obsessive little jerk wad. He's a jerk. He's like, I can't, he dumps his girlfriend in order... I could do a whole rant on whip on how bad Whiplash is. But on top of that, La La Land is also an overrated hunk of, hunk of crap. It is such a narcissistic... 
way of of viewing musicals. It's not ca- none of the music is catchy. None of all the entire storyline is up its own ass. It's I don't get the appeal of La La Land, and I'm ecsta- I was ecstatic that Moonlight won because Moonlight is a far superior movie to La La Land, and I stand by that opinion. So I'm hoping that First Man will be the will be the, the turning point where people start to realize, oh wait, Damien Chazelle is overrated. That's what I hope for. At any rate, well, it's gonna back to where the uh, how we alphabetically started. But my pick of the week next week, because unless something bad happens and the First Man or Goosebumps is better than this, this is gonna be my pick of the week for next week, and that is Bad Times at the El Royale. Let's take a watch. Nice. First time at the El Royale? You have the option to stay in either California or Nevada. I always want to stay in the honeymoon suite, even though I'm not currently on my honeymoon. <laughs> I love John Hamm. What are you doing out here? I got a job singing in Reno tomorrow. Don't pay nothing. But, uh, She's on the rise. I forget who she is. This is hey. not a place for a priest, Father. <laughs> and Chris Hemsworth. A little too quiet in here. It gives me the willies. Seven strangers. Seven secrets. Sir. We have a problem. All roads lead here. I only watch who they tell me to watch. Who's they? Management. Management. <laughs> this October. You, you could just take what's mine. I wouldn't come a hunt. No, I figured you would. Then I'd be ready when he did. He lost, Father. I really hope this uh, helps Dakota Johnson rise above the Fifty Shades franchise. From Drew Goddard, the screenwriter of Martian and Clo- the Martian and Cloverfield. It all starts with a simple choice. Oh. Are you mind opening the door? No, I ain't gonna do that. Which side are you on? Right, wrong, God or no God, red or black? I've done horrible things. So everybody. Happens. Get the whiskey. Ha <laughs> ha! Uh, the that in the for the episode. Bad times at the El Royale. Ah, crap! I, I missed it in the. In the trailer here, let me pull her up, pull up the IMDb for it. But yeah, I forget who the the singer is in this. The one who's uh, going off to become a singer, um, the black girl. I forget she's not hot top the top bid. I think John Hamm is top bid. Uh, Chris Hemsworth is listed highest in the cast. Uh, Hemsworth, Dakota Johnson, John Hamm, Jeff Bridges, Manny Jacinto, Nick Offerman's going to be in it. Catherine Isabel, Lewis Pullman. Look into him for a second. Kaylee Spaney, Xavier Dolan, Cynthia Erivo. That's who it is. Oh, she was just in the news for something controversial. I think she's uh, like she's playing an iconic uh, black uh, Harriet. That's what it was. She's she's gonna, she's already cast to be, play Harriet Tubman, and people were concerned about complexion because I think Harriet Tubman's darker, and they cast a light skinned actress for it. I can't speak to that. Um, all I know is that she's in this and the upcoming Widows, and I hope and I and she looks good in both. So we'll have to wait and see. 
but I will let uh, the black community speak to um, their opinions on her playing Harriet Tubman. That is not my place to speak. And I know I know well enough to <laughs> acknowledge that. Louis Pullman, uh, da, 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 born in 93. Where's the full, full bio? I want to see something. Knew it! I knew the name! I figured as much. Yes, we've got the son of Bill and Tamara Pullman. Uh, Tamara been married to Bill Pullman since 1987. Oh, they're still good. They're still going. Awesome. No, I have no idea what the, how the relationship is. But yeah, Bill Pullman uh, is his son. It seems to get is starting to get his himself some roles. Oh, he was in the Strangers, the second Strangers movie. I guess he was the the son in that. Uh, Larry Riggs, the uh, Steve Carell's son in Battle of the Sexes. And then he's going to be playing like the clerk here. And who's doing this Catch Twenty Two? That's the second time I saw this tonight. Limited series based on the classic Joseph Heller novel. Christopher Abbott, Kyle Chandler, George Clo- George Clooney, George Clooney, huh? That yeah, Rafi Gavron is in it. Uh, Giancarlo Giannini, Hugh Laurie, uh, Kevin J O'Connor. So apparently uh, Lewis, po- Lewis Pullman is going to be in that as well. Christopher Abbott is going to be playing Yasarian, the main guy. He's best known for James White, It Comes at Night, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, and Martha Marcy May Marlene. Uh, what was the last thing I saw him in? He's going to be in First Man. Bunch of guys from First Man, it looks like, because I think Kyle Chandler is in that as well. Let me see. Kyle Chandler. Um, for uh, Argo, Super 8, Friday Night Lights, Manchester by the Sea. Godzilla vs. Kong. Ooh. Uh, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Yeah, he's also in First Man. I thought so. Um, and then he was the brother in Game Night. Um, Jason Bateman's brother. So, uh, who's doing this, though? It doesn't say the network. Country USA. Release date 2019. Paramount Television. Damn it, now I have to go to Google for this. <sighs> Catch-22 miniseries. Now I have to know, because all these people I'm talking about are in this miniseries, and I don't know. American-British uh, Italian drama premiering on Hulu in the United States. Channel 4 in the UK, Sky Italia in Italy. So... That's so Hulu is going to be airing this mini series based on Catch 22 with Christopher Abbott, Kyle Chandler, Hugh Laurie, George Clooney, Rafi Gavron from uh, Star is Born, Louis Pullman, uh, son of um, Bill Pullman, Giancarlo Giannini, and uh, sadly, these people I'm not familiar with Daniel David Stewart, uh, Austin Stowell. Uh, hopefully I'll get to know them better as, um, as we, uh, go, get along. But who's show running this? Who's produce, like, who's producing, who's direct? Clooney. That makes sense. So yeah, Clooney's kind of leading this adaptation, it looks like, with, uh, Grant Hesloff and Ellen Kouris, uh, written by Luke Davies and David Michaud. Uh, Michaud, known for Animal Kingdom, The Rover, and Hesher. And Luke Davies being known for Candy, a novel of love and addiction, and the screenplay for Lion. Ooh, that's good. So you've got 
also some that's an Australian writer, and I think Michaud is yeah, he's also Australian. Two Australian writers, uh, George Clooney kind of being the main showrunner, it looks like, with Grant Hesloff, uh, who co-produced Argo, and then Alan Curris, who is member of the American Society of Cinematographers. So, interesting. Very interesting. I can't wait for that next year. So, I'll have, have to take a look into that. Catch-22 on Hulu in America. Channel 4 in the UK. Sky Italia in Italy. So, keep your keep your eyes and ears up for that. I'm sure the trailers will start popping uh, as we start, into head in, start heading into next year. So, yeah. Um, I'm excited for next week. Uh... I really hope it's good. Uh, I know I know Drew Goddard is a solid screenwriter, so I'm interested to see how he does as a director. Uh, did he direct anything before? I forget. Um, he wrote on the Cabin in the Woods. He was a producer on Lost and Daredevil. I think this is his director. No, he directed Cabin in the Woods as well, and he directed an episode, of, a couple episodes. Of the, he directed the pilot of The Good Place. Interesting, and he's also directing X Force. Neat. So this will be interesting. I can't wait. Um, so yeah, that'll be next week, and that about does it for this week, which means it is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GummyCatNetworks.com, and if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, favorite that page, and whitelist us on your app blocker. Check out all of our other fine programming while you're on the site. Uh, highly recommend Donna's stuff over on the Snarkcast uh, side of things. Um, um... The Family Business, Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, Once More with Feeling. Uh, all of that is fu- fantastic. Um, yeah, stay tuned. Uh, we'll, we're in between weeks when it comes to Living in the Stacks, but next week we're going to continue things with uh, um, uh, one, of our fa- one of my personal favorites. So it's a fantasy classic. Stay tuned for that. And then I'm hoping to get Majide up and running. I've been talking with Mike. Uh, from Game Kiwi about that. So we should be getting that up. We should be getting our soft reboot season two of Majide up, up and running fairly soon. So stay tuned for that. We'll announce when it's officially coming out live. And, uh, you know, and if you yourself are a podcaster and you would like to be featured on our network, be sure to let us know at gumbycatnetworks at gmail.com and uh, we'll respond to your inquiries in kind. And hopefully we can uh, have you join our, our family. Um, if you're not, if you would rather listen to us on the go, you can listen to us on your various podcast providers. We're on Apple Music, Apple iTunes Podcasts, uh, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Spreaker, Stitcher. So wherever you listen to podcasts, be sure to look for Popcorn Junkie. If you see my orange mug chomping on popcorn and staring at the movies and you're well over a hundred episodes, you're listening to the right feed. So be sure to leave five-star rating and review to let people know that you like the show and that they should check it out, too. And if you want to help share the show on social media, our social media home is popcorn uh, is pop, Facebook.com slash Popcorn Junkie. And that's where all the major announcements are going to be. And then you can also follow me on Twitter at Corn Junkie Pod. That's where I do the Twitter mu- Twitters and Twitter Munch Along and Trailer Talk. Um, I'm not, I haven't been as active just because it's been busy. But I hope to get... Uh, I hope they get, start doing some munch-alongs in the lead-up to, to uh, the Halloween spooktacular for 2018. Bring that back, hopefully. And then, um, 
is you know, you can follow us on Instagram at Popcorn Junkie Podcast, and you can follow me on Stardust at Popcorn Junkie, and that's where you'll find my reactions to um, the new releases and what I'm reviewing for the podcast. So if you want to keep up, if you want to have a nice preview of what to expect from uh, from my opinion, you can follow me there. I highly recommend the Internet's other John Bailey, who turns out was in a game I just beat. John ba- the Internet's John Bailey, the other Internet's John Bailey, epic voice guy, um, was Torchman and one of the other robot masters in Mega Man Eleven. Good for you, dude. You, you, I mean, I can't imagine a better voice actor for to join the Mega the ranks of Mega Man. And, um, also I highly recommend playing Mega Man 11. If you're a fan of the Mega Man series, it's a great return to form. And it's a nice sort of updating graphics with a new mechanic. I, I had a blast playing through it this week. And then, uh, yeah, so I, I back to the internet's other John Bailey, uh, Bailey with an I. He is the king of Stardust. I will say that up front. There is not a, I have yet to see a better Stardust reactor than John Bailey, epic voice guy on Stardust. He is the king of Stardust. He has mastered the platform. Highly recommend his reactions. And but you can also check out the guys like Double Toasted, Shmo's No. You know, find, uh, Mars Girl hasn't been active on there, but I know she's signed up for it. Um, then you can also find out some various newcomers, some up and start, you know, up and comers like me. Uh, very, you know, just regular people listing their reactions to a movie. You know, they don't have to be do- promoting a YouTube review show or a podcast or anything like that. They can, they're just regular people, sh- you know, reacting to movies like regular people do. So come join us on Stardust. Follow me at Popcorn Junkie and find your own your own group of people to follow, and maybe leave some of your your own reactions. And if and if I brought you the, to the app, be sure to let me know. You know, you can always tag me. And I'll be happy to do so in kind. Um, and if there's anything else you want to say, any kind of feedback you want to give, any kind of corrections you want me to make. And like I mentioned, if you're in a foreign market and you have some more insight into what and how these things and, and how these movies get so much buzz and if there's something different. Like, are you getting a different cut? I've always been of the mindset that the people who write the subtitles for the foreign releases write better movies than what we get. But... It can't just be that the visuals, because visuals and Venom are trash too. Like, was it just, was it just that Venom is that popular? Like, I, like I said, if you have any insight, be, let me know at popcornjuggypodcast.gmail.com. And like I said, any other corrections, any kind of, give me your thoughts on the movies I reviewed this week. Maybe you have, like I said, maybe you have a, a reason that Judy Garland's uh, A Star is Born is your favorite version. And maybe you hate the Lady Gaga version. Whatever your opinions are, I'd love to hear them. Let me know what you think and send all of that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. And if you want me to read it out on the air, let, you have, you'll have to um, specify that in the message. I, would, I want that in writing so that I don't, you know, say your words without your, you know, without being, without you wanting to be heard. Maybe you want to remain anonymous. I would let, so if you want me to read it out on the air, make, leave it in the message of the, leave it in the message you, you send, putting it in writing. I want to, you know, buy the book. And that about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and I am too old to be recording these this late. And I'm not looking forward to next week either. This October is not going to be fun, is it?
theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. Thank you.